The greatest first baseman in Mets history always wanted the number seven, reflecting his childhood hero, Mickey Mantle. Needing a seven at the end of his uniform, he wore 37 with the Cardinals. But with the Mets, uh, 37 had already been taken by Casey Stengel. So Keith took number 17. Leadership, solid hitting, and spectacular fielding helped him win a World Series with both clubs. And on July 9th at City Field, the number 17 will be retired, only the fourth player in Met history. Hi, Keith Hernandez. Hi, Les. How are you? Well, well, thank you for joining me. Um, tell me about that call. What's that like to get that call? Well, I got the call from the owners, the new owner, Steve, Steve Cohen. And um, I was just, it was before spring training. and. Um, I assumed it was just he wanted to chat about the ball club because he's been kind of open to it for, for, for advice from from ex-players and people still involved in the organization. So I started talking about the team and how I was how excited I was at the moves they made in the offseason, which were considerable. And then he interrupted me and said, that's not the reason why I'm calling. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And then he said, well, we are retiring your number. And I just was completely floored. I mean, it's the highest honor an organization can give a player. And particularly, you know, the Mets are no longer, we always look at the Mets like the Casey Stingle, you know, baby Mets and the, and the Mutts, you know, but they're 60 years of history. The Mets have been around 60 years. This is their 60th anniversary, their 61st season. They have a, a long history in, in Major League Baseball. And there's only, like you said, I'll be the fourth player. And the other two are Gil Hodges, of course, recently inducted into the Hall of Fame as much, much deserved. And Casey, but they're retired as as managers. So I'm the fourth player along with Kuzman, Seaver and Piazza. It's a great honor. Yeah, it's um, I was the first woman inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which was quite an honor. The class was staggering. It was um, Troy Aikman, Reggie White, Harry Carson and John Madden. And when they called me. I was saying, okay, you can't take it back. You can't say you dialed the wrong number. <laughs> like I was so <laughs> overwhelmed. You know, it's just it not, is. not something to you, much deserved. Uh, yeah, I, thank I watched you many years on the tube. <laughs> well, and me to you. Having watched all, all you guys for so many years, I always thought that everyone's mustache kind of fit his personality. I mean, you know, Goose Gossages was perfect for him, mm -hmm. the mad Hungarian. What does yours? say about your personality well i grew up with uh have gun will travel and wanted dead or alive maverick um you know richard boone with the mustache and as paladin uh then you had clint eastwood came in with his uh the man with no name uh the, the good the bad and the ugly and all those and i was in basically in high school and a uh, young kid with the TV stuff. And all Ben Clint came in when I was in high school. And then the Oakland A's, we never had an American League team in the Bay Area. I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area on the west side. Only had the Giants. And then Charlie Finley, Finley brought the A's to uh, Oakland. And he allowed them to grow their hair long and sideburns long and their mustaches. So I kind of kind of grew up in that era. And I always liked the mustache. Plus. To be perfectly honest with you, I have a very thin upper lip. 
<laughs> which I don't like. <laughs> but not thin skin, which is good. <laughs> so it covers it up. <laughs> I don't I don't think the fingers look would have worked for you though. No, Raleigh's fingers of the, the handlebar? No. 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 I like gooses. Gooses was too too big. Um, but I thought that um Clint Eastwood's uh, mustache uh, hang him high and uh for a few dollars more was just a classic. What was your uh, connection with the Cardinals? I, I thought one time you said you always were a Cardinal fan. Uh, my dad in, uh, was a professional baseball player, and uh, he got signed originally by the Brooklyn Dodgers before World War II. And he played two years, and the war came. And uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor, he was right into uh, the he went right into the Navy. And after a very small, very, very short boot camp, he was shipped out to Pearl Harbor. And he was there around six weeks after the bombing and uh, the attack. And uh, he served the entire war there, five years in a ship repair unit. Never went to sea, but he played. He was a great first baseman, very good fielder. That's how I learned how to play. He was a very good hitter and knew the game. And he was the starting first baseman on the Navy team, which used to entertain the troops that were on R&R, and uh, they would be the Marine Corps team, the Navy, the Army, and there was no Air Force then, it was the Army Air Corps. And uh, Musial, in 1945, he didn't serve uh, 41, 42, 43, 44. He went in the Navy in 45, and he played on the Navy team with Dad, and they developed a friendship. And uh, I've got photos, black and white photos, on there on Waikiki Beach. And someone took the photo uh, from the beach, from the ocean into the beach, and they built a big uh, pit, had coral rocks in there, and they were barbecuing. And in the background is just palm trees. We're now Waikiki Beach is just, you know, one building on top of another. Uh, so that, that friendship, uh, dad didn't bother him after the war but when we got older my brother and i it was time for us to go to the ball game he wouldn't call stan in the hotel and stan left us tickets from like 1960 61 62 63 retired in 63 we always got box seats behind a third baseline when the cardinals came to town and we got to go in the clubhouse at candlestick park i can't so, believe i i don't know that that yeah, and I then I can tell you, I sat down, it was getaway day, and Musial's wrapped in a towel, he's showered, and he's drying his hair, and I sat down in the chair next to him, in his locker, and then Ken Boyer came up and sat down to my right, and I looked at Ken Boyer, I knew who he was, I'm around eight years old, and he, tussled, he rustled my hair, and uh, little did I know, think about it, it was 1963, 62, that in, uh, 12 years uh, later, he would be my AAA manager uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then would be my major league manager in 70, 79 and part of 80. So I was a Cardinal fan from that point on. I always loved the uniform. The uniform, the best with the birds, with the feet. It's yeah. just the best. It, yeah. it really is. Uh, no question. And the, and the socks. And the socks and the socks. I mean, that's, that's such a circle of life there. Unbelievable. It is. And to, to get drafted by the Cardinals out of high school, I was just, you know, I couldn't believe it. I, I guess so much of you is so New York now. Like when you were growing up, 
what did you think of New York outside of loving the Yankees? Like, did, did you have any idea of the glamour and the what New York was? My view of New York was, uh, remember Frank Sinatra's movie, The Detective? Was New York was seedy and, and full of crime and dirty streets and dark and dank and very dangerous place. I mean, when I was with the Cardinals, my first time, we, we flew in at night, late night, and George Kissel was uh, Red Shandies, my manager's uh, bench coach. So I'm checking in. It's around midnight and one o'clock. And we're over at the old New York Sheridan, which was on uptown is Sixth Avenue, right? Downtown is Seventh. I forget. Uh, it's on Sixth Avenue by the park. I think it was Fifty Sixth. And it's still and, there. <laughs> uh, and George Kissel, I forgot my key. Said, "Follow me." And he went out the revolving door, and we're out there on Sixth Avenue. And he points up to Central Park, and he goes, "Don't go there." And he points downtown. He goes, that's Times Square. Don't go there. He points points west at the hotel and goes, that's Hell's Kitchen. Don't go there. (laughs) And then he points over to to the right and goes, that's Upper East Side. You can go there. Go there. You can (laughs) go to Elaine's. I stayed in my room the whole whole series. (laughs) Your whole life has been just so remarkable. I have to take you back because um, I am born, bred, and bled Red Sox fan. And I was um, writing for the Boston Globe in 1986. And my assignment was uh, to go down to the, of course, Gammons was doing most of everything, but I was, my assignment was to go down to the Red Sox clubhouse celebration after 68 years. And Uh and a few of us were on the elevator and they said, uh, hold the elevator, Carter singled. And now the elevator's banging against my hip. Oh, hold the elevator, don't go down, Mitchell singled. Um, you were famously in the clubhouse. But after you saw Carter's hit, did you start thinking, hmm, maybe there is something? Um, Kevin Mitchell followed Carter, I believe. Yes. And I said, okay, we're one out away. And we're down two runs. It's the greatest uh, single comeback in World Series history in a game. Okay. And a game of such magnitude, uh, 108 wins and we lose. When Ray Knight got the hit, third hit in a row, that's when I said I was in the clubhouse with, believe it or not, old Boston Red Sox manager, Daryl Johnson. And Daryl was our chief advanced scout. And I was with also with Jay Horowitz, you know, Jay. And we're in Davey's office watching. And after that third hit, I said, I'm not leaving here because uh, this, this seat, this co- couch I'm sitting on has hits. I said, nobody's moving. But uh, so the three of us watched it on TV. And you've been to a rock concert at the Madison Square Garden when it's like you think the whole grandstands are going to collapse. I mean, Shea Stadium's concrete. and We're under the box seats, our locker room. And as the seats go angle up, we're underneath just behind the dugout around 30 yards. And that stadium I thought was going to, I mean, it was an old stadium. Was this going to withstand all this? And it sure did. But did you think, I mean, okay, you, Carter, you might expect he might get a hit off Giraldi. And then, you know, Mitchell. And then were you thinking, well, okay, they got to take Giraldi out. Like this is falling apart. And then it fell apart when Stanley came in. 
Um, I wasn't thinking, I knew that Calvin, it was a tough spot for Calvin because he was an ex-Met and they were, they were chanting Calvin, you know, 55, 57,000 people. And I just felt he got a little rattled and you know, he was he didn't have that much experience. You know, he was just, he had, he had a great second half stretch run for Red Sox. It was a big part of their winning everything. He was their closer. Believe it or not, Stanley, of all your bullpen pitchers, and that was really the weak spot because there's more importance in the National League, not anymore now because they got the DH on a bullpen because your pitcher's losing one nothing in the seventh or sixth. You know, you got to pull them. You got to have more bullpen with a DH. You don't have to leave them in. So there's not that much emphasis on the bullpen. That was their Achilles heel because they had a lineup. That was a good team. I remember Red Chandy's told me once, my first manager, and he managed the, the 67 series against Boston, and he lost in the, against uh, the Tigers in 68. He told me uh, he was head bench coach for, for uh, Whitey in 82. He said, you know, Keith, when you get down to the final two, they're the best in both leagues, and the team you're going to play is not going to be a pushover. They're there because they're good, and the Red Sox were good. Stanley had the best stuff of anybody. He threw, he had a wet one. He had a spitter or sneak or whatever. He, and it really, it sunk. He struck me out with the bases loaded, I believe. I forget, was it, it was at Shea, I believe. And he threw me a nasty three, two, and that thing just dropped out. But uh, I think he just kind of overthrew the ball, tried to throw inside. And of course, Mitchell scores and then, Mookie, you know, Buckner is such a good friend. And, you know, I know McNamara wanted to keep him in the game to celebrate because Buckner had a great year. He, he did. Like he 115, did. 16 he runs. Did. But wouldn't and Stapleton have maybe been He's the better? always, I know, I hear you. And the fact that of all, how the game progresses, I remember Seaver told me that he would always think two innings ahead in the lot, and I never thought of it. And that's why Tom's such a great pitcher, is that, Okay, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then the, then the third inning, who am I facing? The base hit here. And um, somehow as the game evolved, it evolved. And Mookie is the batter. And he is our fastest runner. And he is someone that even when I was a, when I was a Cardinal and he was with the Mets and they were terrible, always in last place, he ran everything out hard. And I admired him and respected him for that. And he hustled down that line. Don't think Buckner didn't know. I mean, yeah, I had, do you think part oh, of course. Buckner's, he got rattled knowing? Yeah. Okay. He had, to, he had to sidle over and he, you know, he was just like a, like a, like a rusty gate, you know, he wasn't. And I know the ground balls hit to me slowly with Mookie running when I was a Cardinal, I had to go get that ball and get the first base. So he definitely, definitely, definitely had a big part in that ball going through his leg. So after that, um, uh, there aren't even words, you know, to express what, uh, I mean, I, I'd been there for Dent. I'd been there. You know, I'd, I'd seen all of them, right? And now, I mean, what a pin in our eye, right? 13 strikes to get it done, right? Okay, so then the next day, you have to get that hit? I do. <laughs> really? Was that necessary? Well, it just, again, the lineup just rolled my way. And I had the same situation in 82 um, with against the, against the Brewers. Um, Bob McClure, who I grew up with, left-hander. Uh, Whitey pinched hit Gene Tennis in front of me. 
and McClure pitched around him to walk him because the base was open, and that set up that base hit in the seventh game that tied the game. And here I am uh, in 86, four years later, and Tuffle, Tim Tuffle, right-hand hitter's up, and Hurst pitches around him, throws him a 3-2 curveball to walk him with an open base. And I remember going, oh, you got to be shitting me. Excuse my language. It's on me again. You know, a sacrifice fly wasn't going to do it. It had to get a base hit. Um, I had the power hitters behind me and Carter and uh, Strawberry. And I was a line drive hitter. And, um, you know, Hearst was tough. And I remember my brother was at the game, my older brother, Gary. He was in box seats over home plate. And when he walked Tuffle, I, I was on one knee in the on-deck circle, and I looked up at him, and he just <laughs> gave me the power sign, and that, and that just kind of calmed me down. But then Hurst, the first pitch, dropped a, a curveball on me, nasty, and buckled me, and I went, oh, boy, I'm 0-1. So I just said, I, okay, he's got that hard sinker. He likes to run that fastball inside, and the book on me was in. I just had a hunch he was going to come in after that curveball. And I wasn't totally 100% selling out on it, but I had it in the back of my mind. So I choked up around another two inches on my back. You choked up? Oh, I always, cho- I always choked up around that much every, every at bat. But this time I went to there because uh, I, I was 0-1 and I needed a little more barrel, shorten the bat. And he tried to come in and he got it up. He didn't get it in enough. And I got the base hit. And that, let me tell you, that was... That was such a relief when I got to first base. If you look at the the footage of the of the game when I, I just watched it recently with that wonderful ESPN 3030 uh, on the 86 Mets, when I get down on my knees and I just take a deep breath, you know, it was like those I, those were two seventh game at bats that I had that were critical that I came through, and I can tell you they weren't like regular season at bats. They weren't fun. It was like okay, I'm expected to get the big hit here. And boy, you have to take a deep breath, count to 10. So my dad always said, whenever you feel a little overloaded, just step out, take a deep breath, count to 10, take a deep breath, get back in the box and get set. Was it possible? Do I remember hearing you say one time that you didn't know what your contract, you had the great young players in 84 and 85, and you possibly could have missed the 86 season? Like, were you thinking of maybe? Well, I, I could have wound up somewhere else because um, the Mets were perennial the last play. After they traded Seaver in 77, um, the Mets were, for that, from that point on, they were a last place team. When Whitey traded me to the Mets in 83, it had been 78, 79, 80, 81, mm-hmm. 85 years of last place. And they were in last place in 83 when they got traded at the deadline June 15th. When the season was over, it was a very unsettling year, uh, you know, mid-season when you got to pick up roots. And I was very hurt. I was always a cardinal. And the first trade always hurts the worst. Um, and uh, Frank, after the season was over, he called me around two weeks after the season over, Frank Cash and the general manager, and said, Keith, we really got some young players down in the minor leagues. And I think you've seen Strawberry and Darling, but there's more coming. And I re- really think that we've been in last place. We haven't squandered our draft picks. And we, I think I really want you to be a part of this. And I'm going, Oh boy. And I, 
I remember Tommy Lasorda really did something he wasn't supposed to do. He called me on the phone and said, I'd love to have you come over and play with the Dodgers. And that's, that's uh, not, that's against the rules. And uh, I remember I called my dad and uh, you remember the strike year in 81, the ESPN showed a lot of minor league games. So dad watched because he had a satellite. I got him a satellite and he saw strawberry. He saw, He's the scout. He saw Dykstra uh, and he said, and, and McDowell and uh, that whole crew. And he said, son, I, I think you should stay. And I go, why? He goes, I've, they got, I've seen them playing. They, they got some young talent down there, guys that really can play. And I think it's perfect for you. And I'm sitting there and going my whole life, I've been so self-destructive at that point in my life. And I go, I've made bad decisions. And my dad always seems to be have a, to make the right decision. So I stayed because of my father. And it was, he was right. And it turned out to be, I mean, just a life altering for me in so many ways to be in New York, Manhattan, and uh, to be able to experience Manhattan and then to win in New York. My goodness. Well, and you, how do you characterize the Mets of the 80s? You know, they, they did represent New York in, in certain ways, you know, the, maybe the underdog thing. But how do you look back on it? We took the back page from the Yankees and the Yankees were good. They had Mattingly and Winfield. They were a good team and they just always fell short. Um, but we stole the headlines in the, in the back page. Um, I always say the man, uh, the uh, team takes on the, the personality of the manager. Uh, Davey Johnson was out of that Earl Weaver, Billy Martin mold. And uh, Davey didn't really have just told us, don't embarrass the team. Uh, just I don't care what you do. Just show up on time and be able to play and perform to the, to the level that you can. And I'll leave you alone. So he maybe he could have he's been criticized for not having a firmer grip on us. Um, we had a lot of young players that were just became great players and uh, was a very talented team. You know, and it's like. Animal House in Major League Baseball. You know, you're like, in, it's a fraternity, in a fraternity house, a frat house. You're on the road for 10 days. You're playing night games. The game's over. You're, it's back then, it wasn't like today, 11 o'clock. My God. Uh, you know, the game could be over at 10 o'clock. And you go back to the hotel on the road and you're all still geared up from the game. You, what am I going to do? Go play tiddlywinks in my hotel room? And I think it was all part of the game that you go down and you have a couple beers together, maybe more, and talk about the game. Talk about your at-bats. You know, how'd the guy pitch you? That's the one thing I wanted to do with the young players when I came over. Because when I first came in 83, they were a last-place team. I remember I joined them in Montreal, and I got on the team bus to go to State Olympique, and there was no one on the bus. I go, okay. I get to the ballpark. Uh, this is my first game. I played the night before. Like I went right from the airport, but this is the second game. So I'm getting into the routine here. <clears throat> Everybody's kind of scattered in the clubhouse. There's no mingling. And we go out and play the game. I get on the bus after the game. There's no one on the bus. When I go to the hotel bar, only Mike Torres was there, a veteran. My my, my generation. Don't bring him up to a Red Sox fan. <laughs> God, I know, but he That's the worst. And no one's in the in the Why? bar. So I'm going the whole second half of the season. It was that way. It was just the group was not. It was a last place team. Mm -hmm. And so I made the point uh, in '84 
of um, once I realized it took two weeks, I saw these young players. I went, oh, my God, this, this is a team that's talented and loaded. They're just young. So the first we opened the season on the road in Cincinnati. We had Cincinnati two games. went to Houston for three, Atlanta for three, and Chicago for two. Oh, last place Mets opening up on the road like that. So I said after the first uh, first game, I said, let's go meet at the hotel hotel bar and let's have a couple of beers and talk about the game. And a lot of guys came. And we that's how we started coming together. And uh, that was Is my that the Is that the good part, but the drugs were the bad part? Well, the drugs, um, I didn't know at that point. Um, I wasn't doing drugs at that point. But uh, I always liked to always like a Michelob or two after a ball game. And that's for sure. And I always, and I, the things I miss the most is the camaraderie, the airplane. I'm sure you've heard this before, the card games on the airplane, uh, after the game in the hotel bar on the road. Uh, you know, I, that's the part I miss because we were a, a pretty close group. I mean, the Cardinals were the same way. Tell me about today's game. Um, tell me what you like about the changes? Do you like the universal DH? Do you like the expanded playoffs? I don't like the DH, but I think the DH takes away from the strategy of the game. Uh, managers have to manage the, the last three innings is usually where the managing comes in, where you have to flip-flop lineups, you know, and you have to take out a pitcher. When do you take out the pitcher? I mean, uh, I, I think it takes away from a lot. The only thing it adds is another hitter, you know, and um, so I, I don't care for that. Um, uh, I, I don't. I think the games are too long, and I don't understand how when my generation we could play a two-hour, ten-minute game. You know, one-nothing game was always two fifteen. The most games were two thirty, two thirty-five, and now we you know it's another hour, three and a half-hour games, and a lot of it is um, a lot of analytics a lot of pitching changes and i just think the pitchers today um don't challenge the hitters more than in our day uh, i know that would uh, i'll be up there in the eighth thing eight nothing and a relievers finishing the game out we'd be out in the field throw strikes we've got eight gloves out here just put the ball in play we want to get the hell out of here. It's we're in Atlanta. It's been ninety. Run the ball and it's football. ninety-eight degrees and it's humid. We've been out here for two and a half hours. Just throw strikes. Just get us in the clubhouse. And they go out there and they want to strike out the hitter and they'll even walk them. Eight nothing. I mean, used to be a sin. You got an eight nothing lead. And you want to get your manager upset. You walk someone with an eight no, eight nothing lead in the ninth inning or a five nothing lead. That'll get you in trouble. But a lot of three two counts. Um, there's two sides of the coin. I get it. And it's always the bullpens because they use the bullpens more than we had in our day. Our starters would go a lot further. We only had 10 pitchers, five starters and five bullpen guys. And, uh, but the starters went longer. That's why you need, you know, seven bullpen guys now, which means there's not enough talent to go around. So there's a lot of guys that are wild. A lot of pitches that really should be in triple A. <laughs> you look so frustrated right now. It's like, I, <laughs> I don't like the rule where you got to bring in a guy and he's got to face three hitters because late in the game, suppose you've got, um, I'll go back to, you've got Rico Petroselli up or, then, or Yaz up, then Petroselli and uh, then, uh, then uh, 
Conigliaro and Tony. And Yaz is in the middle. And you it's a one-nothing game in the ninth inning, eighth inning. Bring in a right-hander. You're going to keep the right-hander to face Yaz? I don't, you've got to bring in a left-hander. But yeah, now you should be able to. have to consider, okay, who is the guy that I want to get out of those three? And those three hitters are pretty good. Well, yeah, I'm not going to let Yaz beat me. So you're going to bring in a left-hander and has to face three guys or finish the inning. I don't like that. I'll go, I'll meet him halfway. First six innings, you can do that. But let the manager manage the last seven, eight, and nine, ninth inning. What do you think of the technology, the catchers and the pitchers and the no cheating? Uh, well, the cheating, to me, the Houston Astro fiasco. I mean, if I'm a catcher and I'm there in Houston in a three-game series, and I catcher's got to hear it, too. And where's he? Where's he? It's like, what the hell's going on here? Every time I put down, a, you know, three or two, I'm hearing these symbols, you know. Uh, you're going to figure it out. Um, the new technology now, which is interesting, is the, uh, the signals. I don't like quite understand yet. I, I haven't got a problem with that. Uh, but it does take away with the catcher and the pitcher doing their due diligence. Okay, you got a code. Okay, if you think someone's got it. The Cubs in 84 were a veteran team. We lost. That was the year we finished second place. Went from last to second. Cubs are notorious sign stealers. And uh, 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 it was 85, but the Cubs won in 84. Carter came over as a veteran. Sixth inning, he went out every inning and changed the sign. With the, when we went to Chicago, because they had the can, they had the TV in the clubhouse. They'd have the backup catcher breaking the code, and then they'd run it out there, and um, they would uh, give the sign from the dugout to the base runner on second base. <laughs> and uh, relay that sign, and usually it was if you stood straight up, it's a fastball. If you put your hand on your knees, it was a breaking ball. Or if you looked at the hitter and you're straight on your lead, uh, that was a fastball. If you look back at second base, it was a breaking ball. <laughs> you can say that's cheating, but you know what? Change your sign. And yeah, also, change your signs. Also, put something, put down number two, and put something under someone's chin. I don't scare the bejesus out of them. <laughs> This is why you're so candid on the, the broadcast. I mean, do you do? You, well, first, tell me about the team this year, the Mets. I mean, a lot of predictions for them. How do you see it? Well, we have new ownership, and I think that uh, it's obvious that he wants to win. And uh, not that the other one did not want to, the Wilpons. Uh, but uh, Mr. Collins, he spent over $200 million in the offseason. He brought in uh, three players and uh, everyday players. And he also brought in Scherzer. And uh, I, I like our team. Uh, I think the biggest thing I told you earlier, that team takes on the personality of its manager. And I was just praying that they would hire Buck Showalter. And they did. He's old school. He's going to use analytics. Analytics became too overpowering the last two seasons in the, in, in the Mets front of clubhouse. Bucks come in now, and he uses it. But he's he's a he's a he's been in the game a long time. He's managed in New York. He's managed in the postseason. Three time manager of the year. Uh, he has respect. He's a, uh, of the players. Players want to be led. I just thought it was such a crucial choice, and it's showing on the team right now. And the plus, the three players they brought in: Canna from Oakland and Escobar from Milwaukee. 
and Starlin Marte uh, from Oakland. They're veterans and we're a veteran team and they, they are professionals. And we've got some, we're not a young team. We're a team that's over 30 years of age of average. It's meant to win now. But our players that are 28, 29, 30, that came up to, they've only got three, four years experience in the big league. So uh, they can be follow example. Like for me, when I came up, there was Bob Gibson and Lou Brock. So, uh, you know, you kind of watch them and how they comported themselves. Wait, McCarver, I did a I took McCarver's. Yes, I did a couple World Series with him. And uh, how did Bob Gibson react to you taking McCarver's spot? Uh, Tim actually went after that. He went to Boston, you recall. He went to the Red Sox briefly. Uh, uh, But I took a space on the roster. I was 20 years old. And I don't think it had any effect. I just, it was a veteran team. Rick Wise was on that team. I mean, it was everybody was in there. I thought I was like, I thought I was in a forest full of giant sequoias and I was just little sapling. Uh, and Gibson was tough on, it was a West Point plea. And Gibson was rough. And Lou was the good cop. I stayed clear of Gibson as much as I could. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about the team this year and how important Buck is, tell me the first time you ever met Buck Showalter. I never really knew Buck that well when he was managing at the Yankees. And I always had a scowl on his face, it seems, you know, and I I really didn't know him. And I would say hello and he really wasn't that uh, personable, uh, probably had things on his mind. It was always during batting practice, just a handful of times. But uh, when he got hired, I've got I've gotten to know him. Two and a half weeks after he was hired, he called me on the phone and wanted to know what this club needed, what he wanted my opinion. And he said, I want you in spring training. I want you to come to spring training. and I want you to be a part of this because you're met history. We're changing things around here. And that's really the first time that something like that's happened. And uh, the Mets have not really em- embraced their tradition uh, and their, their older players. So the first day I go out, the first day of workout was Monday, the first day everybody showed up. He called me on the golf, put me on the golf court, and he put me around every, took me around every field, introduced me to the new players, uh, had the minor league players come over and say, you know who this is? And a lot of players don't know who the hell I am. Yes, and, they do. Oh, come on. Uh, a lot of them look at, you know, it, 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 you'd be surprised. Have all that information at their fingertips, you know, but I grew up with my father. I mean, uh, I, I just, I, I was, I knew who Ralph Kiner was, Joe Medwick, uh, Dizzy Dean, the Gas House Gang. I grew up with that baseball history. So when I met these guys, I knew who the hell they were. Uh, I've actually had more than a few players uh, that were Mets, young kids coming up, look at my press pass to see who I, who I was. <laughs> but but is, it, is it great for you to be around the batting cage where you yes. belong? Now, they weren't allowed on the batting cage, particularly with, with the pandemic. They cordoned it off. Uh, but before that, the Mets didn't allow it. And that, to me, when I played, and we were having the great years, it was a ton of press around the batting cage and the beat writers. I never minded that. They never got in the way. And uh, I always got along the press. There was always maybe one, two, or one or two guys I didn't like. Uh, but that's part of your job. So can you say um, 
you know, a broadcast, this team that has such high expectations, do, do you find yourself ever managing from the booth? Um, of course. Um, yes. Uh, but I don't like to manage vocally on the air. I don't want to second guess the manager. Um, and they, and they will tell you in the truck, the Purdue, our producer, and, uh, well, you're not second guessing if you say it before. It's just your opinion. And uh, I always find that, you know, and it's going to be less and less now because of the uh, DH, is there's always two sides of a coin. A manager has one, two, maybe three choices. And that's right. the choice that he made. You know, a lot of times a manager can make all the wrong moves in the world in a ball game. and people that he put in there that shouldn't be in there did the job and he looks like comes out smelling like a rose another time he can make all the right moves and those guys don't come through and he's he's the goat so it's not a, it's not based on success uh so i mean but don't me, you what, think people want your candor i mean don't don't you think they want to hear well here's maybe what a manager could do yeah, I, uh, we can. We we definitely do that because you're known as that as being very candid. Well, our broadcast is very candid, which I must say is, you know, when you're in New York, I would like to be a little more of a root root for the home team, but we're just not allowed in New York. I mean, I go to rather St. Louis. I mean, the great Jack Buck. I mean, my gosh, uh, uh, you know, Jack could be tough, but Jack pulled for the Cardinals. And, you know, we do that in New York and you got all those, um, all those uh, writers that write on the, you know, Mushnick, Phil Mushnick, who actually, I like his columns. I read his columns. All do you the know time. what? He's, he's only tagged me a couple of times, but he was a hundred percent right. What's the chemistry of that? I mean, of course, Ron, you've known for 40 years or whatever. And, Gary Cohen does such a brilliant job, but how, how do how do you describe your team? Well, I think the backbone of the broadcast is Gary. I mean, he's the play-by-play guy. We are. I I always think of us as uh, Gary's the Leonard Bernstein, and I'm the brass section, and Ron's the string. <laughs> That's terrific. I've never heard that. Gary orchestrates us. He uh, he's very um up on med history number one he knows the game and he keeps us on our toes i mean he asks pointed questions of us and um i mean there's times in a game when it's three and a half i mean last night's game when they brought in the bullpen late in the eighth inning i i just zoned out for around a half a maybe a, an inning i just it was the game was so slow uh but gary when the games are 11 nothing uh, in the fourth inning, those are the games he sh- he shines. He's a total professional, and he, I don't think I would have the success, and I think Ronnie would agree with me that he wouldn't have the success if it wasn't for Gary. And our producer, I don't know if you know Greg Picker. Do you know? Yeah, Greg yeah, Picker? not well, but yeah, tremendous. Greg is our producer, and he is the most uh, imaginative um, and creative producer. And he's in that booth every day, too, at every game. And he listens on our, you know, sometimes we get on the air, right, Wes? And we have, we can't find that word. And you need your producer to say that <laughs> word so you don't skip a beat. I mean, they, the producer can fall asleep in the truck, too. 
you know, no, it is. Up. It's a it's a whole winning broadcast. Um, before I let you go, I just I have to know what is the status of your acting career, and do you ever concern that you know you've been typecast as Keith Hernandez? Uh, my, my acting career is kaput. Um, I never had any desire to act. I don't know if you knew Bobby Zaram, uh, the, the the PR, but he just passed away. By the way, Bobby yeah. was a dear friend. I mean, I. He, he had nothing to do with Seinfeld. Seinfeld's the iconic show. Um, uh, but I got on Law and & Order and did other things that Bobby got me involved with. And plus, Bobby was the guy that got me uh, where I would go to play openings. And, and you know, he just opened up a whole world of, of artistic New York to me. Uh, and I'm forever grateful. Uh, but Seinfeld just fell into my lap and because Jerry was a Met fan. And uh, I was his favorite player, and he conceived this uh, uh, this this, this uh, show about uh, nothing. <laughs> yes, and Larry David was a Yankee fan, so uh, they're both baseball guys. And uh, I, I mean, I just I never that was my first acting experience. I I didn't take any. I, I had no desire to act. I was two years retired, and I'm just sitting home figuring out what I'm going to do the second half of my life. And I get the call, I get this call, and I did. I thought it was going to be a bit part, and then I'm a guest star. And I wound up calling Marsha Mason, who was a good friend, and she was in Taos, and a great actress. Right. And I said, Marsha, I think I'm in over my head. And she, she just said, memorize line one, then do line one, line two, then line one, line two, line three, then go line one, two, three, four, dun, 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 like, and then when you go to bed, do it all over again before you go to sleep because it'll and then wake up Sink in the morning, in. have a cup of coffee and do it again and then go to the studio. Do you uh, do you and Buck uh, around the batting cage ever go over, you know, your acting experience on Seinfeld? We haven't yet because uh, but we do talk baseball, which is <laughs> something something unique. And he didn't really care for his experience on Seinfeld, wasn't it? Kind I don't of, know. Uh, I didn't ask him. I, you know what? I have not. I have seen maybe two or three shows of Seinfeld. I only watched my show once. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed when I see it. <laughs> I thank you so much, uh, Keith. You know, you are Met Royalty. And thank you. Um, it's wonderful to catch up with you. It's nice to see you. I haven't seen you in such a long time. And like I said, the boys down in Florida, the old New Yorkers, Al Dorado, Sal Marciano, and Tommy O'Neill all speak very highly of you and love you. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, Sound design by Robert Moore. And special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.